This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. It's great to see the gospel taking root in future generations. This is the way in which God is continuing to build his church. But these kids don't face an easy future. We live today in a world of gender confusion. And I sometimes wonder if confusion about what it means to be a man or a woman is as prevalent in the church as it is anywhere else. I also wonder if uh, we as Christians have assumed boys and girls will naturally figure it out what it means to be a man. Do we assume that all that's necessary is to explain to them the biological processes that will take place and they'll know then what it is to be a man or a woman? Have we left it to chance that they'll fully capture God's heart and design for man and woman? What if just like we need to be shown how to live the Christian life, we need to be shown how to live as a man and how to live as a woman? And if boys and girls need to be trained and discipled, shown what it means to be a man or a woman, have we done that? Have we done that? There are two related questions I want you to have on your minds as we work through today's scriptures. If your 10-year-old son, grandson, nephew, boy in Sunday school class came up to you and asked, what does it mean to be a man? How would you respond? Do you have a ready-made answer? If your 10-year-old daughter, granddaughter, niece, girl in class came up to you and asked, what does it mean to be a woman? How would you respond? What's your answer? Now, my message today is really only the first chapter of what ought to be several chapters. If I was to, if I was to write a book on the topic, this would be chapter one. And what we're going to see in three sections of text in Genesis 1 to 3 are trajectories actually that are established and maintained throughout the rest of God's word to us on this topic. So get your Bibles open, get them open. We're in Genesis 1, easy find, first book, first chapter. First book, first chapter. Chapter 1, starting in verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, as we work through sections in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I'm going to point out 10 applications and observations about what God is saying to us 
on this important topic of biblical manhood and womanhood. My first 10-point sermon. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Number one, human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. I want to pause right there and say, if if my 10-year-old came up to me and said, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? This is where I'm going to start. I'm starting here. You are made in the image and likeness of God. Now, what does that mean? In the ancient world, rulers would set up images of themselves, statues and other likenesses, and they would scatter it about their land as a way to communicate to those living there that he is present and has dominion over that land. Humanity exists to be God's image, his statue, to represent his presence and rulership over the world. Male and female bear equal responsibility to image God to the world. Both bear a resemblance to God. Nothing else in all of creation is said to be made this way. Now, when you think about that, that's a heavy calling. The moment God decided to make human beings in his image and likeness, he made a statement. And he said to us, now look, there is to be a God-centeredness to your existence. You're made in my image and no other. There's to be a God-centeredness to your existence. You are and are to bear my resemblance in the world. Now, humility and gratitude ought to be some of the appropriate responses that this generates. Because you are more like God than anything else in all of creation. That should mean something to you. And while it's a blessing and a privilege to be made in God's image, it also carries with it responsibility. We have an obligation to bear God's resemblance wherever we go. Attributes true of God ought to be true of us. Holiness, mercy, goodness, love, righteousness, self-giving. Much of what characterizes God ought to characterize us. We're his image. We're not our own image. We're not the image of something else. We are his image. Now, logically, it follows that an image bearer needs to know something about the God they're imaging. We need to know the God we're supposed to image. We need more men and women taking more time to study and apply more of God's word. We don't need less of any of that. We need more of it. Because if you're going to resemble God in the world, you better know extremely well the God you're supposed to image. This is the first and most foundational aspect to what it means to be a man or a woman. There is a God-centeredness to male and female. Every male, every female, there's to be a God-centeredness. Second, male and female are identity markers. Text says male and female, he created them. It is God who came up with the identity markers of male and female. He does not mention any other markers of identity or distinction, such as height, weight, hair color, temperament, gifting. The lone marker of identity is maleness and femaleness. And this this gender or sexual difference takes center stage. So whatever the rest of the scriptures teach about what it means to be a male or what it means to be a female, the least we can say is that male is not female and female is not male. 
In the created order, we may be free to manipulate our hair color, lose a few pounds, but male and female are markers of identity that God determines, and they are not changeable, nor are they interchangeable. On my way into church this morning, sometimes I bring my kids with me. It's a little, a little earlier than they're used to, but they were up and ready to go, and they were asking, so I load them in the car on the way in. My son asked me what I'm preaching on today. I said, I'm preaching on biblical manhood and womanhood what it means to be a man and what it means to be uh, a woman. And, uh, and then we talked a little bit about it. And I took him to the, the, the Psalms where the psalmist says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You knit me together in my mother's womb. See, the ancients knew about how conception works and how gestation works. They knew that, but they preferred to speak in different categories. That's not it. It's God who knits you together. It's God who's determining whether you're male or whether you're female. This is his masterpiece. The moment conception happens, this is God's masterpiece. He's going to work. He's doing the work in there. He's doing the work in there. And then you come out. You come out male. You come out female. We talked about this with my kids. At that point, my my nine-year-old daughter said, "Um, I'm so glad that God knit me together as a woman instead of an ishy boy. (laughs) Enough said. Third, men and women are called to contribute to the creation mandates. There are five imperatives God gives to Adam and Eve. Attending to these five jointly further fleshes out what it means to image God to the world. Procreation and marriage is the obvious one, but there's more in there. Uh, What it means to fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it has garnered lots of attention over the years. There's a whole theology of work embedded in these these words. Maybe the most basic thing to notice here is that we're made in the image and likeness of a God who works. He works. Tom Nelson put it this way. He says, from the very beginning of Scripture, we see the one true God is not a couch potato God, nor did he create a couch potato world. For anyone to refuse to work is a fundamental violation of God's creation design for humankind. So what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? It means to work. Now I want to be quick to note that this work doesn't necessarily mean you're bringing home a W-2. There's much that falls under the category of biblical work that doesn't earn a paycheck. And I would put at the top of the list all the work, the tireless work that goes on at home. It's the most important work. Filling the earth, subduing the earth carries with it this idea of putting the finishing touches on God's creation. God handed us a massively good world with untapped potential that we as men and women are to unlock with our creative and innovative efforts. And we do this as male and female. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? It means to work. Flip over to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree that's in the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever man, the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. 
The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, you got to understand how Genesis 2 is functioning. Genesis 2 functions as a zoom lens to go back to Genesis 1, zoom in on what took place in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and expand it. Okay, so we're going back in time with Genesis 2, back in time. And God's going to unpack the details of what transpired when he says he's going to make male and female. Keep in mind, in Genesis 1, we learned just a little bit about this. Image and likeness of God, male and female, five imperatives. Genesis 2 slows the pace down. Now, Genesis 1 establishes the equality of both sexes as image bearers with responsibilities to image God in the world through multiplying and subduing and ruling over the world as God's vice regents. Genesis 2 will start to flesh out the different roles each will have in getting that work done. So there is sameness and there is difference in male and female. So notice fourth, men and women must attach dignity to the right things. This is an application that comes out of fusing together Genesis 1 with Genesis 2. Sameness and difference. Men and women must attach dignity to the right things. We tend to assign value to roles and job titles. We tend to elevate certain roles and job titles as though they possess more dignity and value. I do not want you to miss how egregious this way of seeing life is. This ethic that assigns value based on profession, role, job title is the same ethic that produces the atrocities of abortion and euthanasia. The most dangerous place in the world for a special needs person to live is in the womb. We have a nasty addiction to assigning value and worth based on what one does or is able to do. But the Bible never assigns value or worth based on role or job title. As a Christian community, we have got to stop the gawking. Stop gawking at people who do certain things or hold certain positions. To to parade one's role or title in front of others derives from the impulse to self-righteousness. And the corollary of that is true as well. To recoil from the fact that God has assigned different roles to men and women is most often driven by the same impulse to self-righteousness. There's a voice that says, I have to have this role. I have to have this title to feel valuable, worthy, and important. This notion that I create my value based on the position I hold or the role I have is self-righteousness. And it's an affront to God and it runs diametrically opposed to the gospel. To either a Christian man or a woman, I will say to you, your value comes from just two sources. That's it. The first is the fact that you are the image of God by virtue of being human. You want to start with your value? You start there. Second, your value comes from the fact that you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Your value, your worthiness, your importance is connected to just those two things. Not what you do or what you don't do, what title you hold or don't hold. Fifth, men and women have distinct roles. Our biological differences point to functional and existential differences. God creates Adam. He places him in the garden, gives him instructions about how the garden was to work. Where's Eve? She's not around yet. She hasn't been created. After she's created, there's no record of God speaking to her, relaying the same information to her that he did to Adam. The presumption here is that Adam was to be conveying this information to his wife. Additionally, Adam is assigned all the naming responsibilities, including naming Eve. 
And while Eve is assigned the title helper, which I'll unpack in a few minutes, Adam does all of the naming. He does the animals, he does Eve, everything. There's both sameness and there's difference in male and female, which likely cuts across the grain of our modern sensibilities because equality suffers from a faulty definition today. Many people believe today that equality is equality of everything, of opportunity and of outcome. Anything you can do, I can do better. That's equality. But it is worth noting that God ordains inequality. God ordains inequality. Here's here's exhibit A. I was born into this world with only so much potential for physical, intellectual, and I'll call it aesthetic development. You know what I'm saying? Okay. I was born into this world with only so much potential for my intellectual, physical, and aesthetic development. And where I learned this was in high school. High school. I'll give you, I've got lots of stories about this, but I'll give you just one. I remember walking uh, as a freshman into the weight room for the first time for gym class. Okay? First time. Never been in a weight room in my life. Freshman in high school. I was skinny as a rail. I had a classmate who had never lifted a weight in his life as well. And I watched as he got down on the bench press and he benched 185 pounds as a freshman. I went down on the bench. I said, you know, load me up. (laughs) Load me up. The teacher looked at me and said, okay, we'll put 115 on there. And uh, it came crashing down on my chest. I couldn't get it off my, I could not get it off my chest. Both of us are the same age. Neither of us had ever lifted weights in our lifetime. Why the inequality? It was not fair. Why the inequality? Think about this. I do not have the preaching voice of Pastor Dwayne. I wish I did, but I don't. I do not have the beard growing capacity of Keith. <laughs> because God is the one who ultimately shapes our lives, I have to conclude he's not interested in unlimited equality among us. And because God is also wise, I have to conclude that unlimited equality among us is a false ideal. But God does teach the equal personhood, value, and dignity of the human race, men, women, and children. And therefore, that must be the only equality that matters to God. Now, this should not be surprising to us, since human beings are made in the image and likeness of a tri-personal God, where each person of the Godhead serves a different function or role. The Father doesn't do the same things the Son does. The Son doesn't do the same things the Father does. The Spirit does different things in both Father and Son as they exercise their ministry toward us. And this is the image we've been made in. We should not be surprised by this. Dr. Claire Smith put it this way. She says, while the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God, this does not prevent differentiation and order within the Trinity. The full and eternal divinity and sovereignty of each member of the Trinity does not require that they are identical or interchangeable in terms of roles and authority. One of the fallacies of much feminist ideology is the belief that for two people to be equal, they must do the same thing. There is an assumption that you cannot have differentiation and hierarchy without also having inferiority and superiority of dignity or worth. 
All three persons of the Godhead share in the same divine being and nature, yet there is an asymmetry within the divine relationships. There is sameness and equality alongside hierarchy and authority. It is not a case of either equality or order, but both equality and sameness and order and difference. The biblical account, both in Genesis and then throughout the rest of the scripture, lays out this functional difference between male and female. Yet at no point in time is, does that differentiation convey diminished value. That's something we do. That's not something God does. Flip over to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Six, then, beware of the temptation to sexual reversals. I find it fascinating that Satan's game plan to infuse sin into God's creation begins by mucking up God's design for male and female. Margaret and Andreas Kostenberger capture this in a chart I'll put on the screen for you here. The fall of humanity was engineered by a complete reversal of divine design. It's a complete reversal. Instead of God's authority being mediated from Eve, from Adam to Eve to the rest of the creation, the biblical fall narrative recounts how the serpent approached Eve, who took the initiative with Adam acquiescing and following her lead and breaking God's commandment. Satan says, I know how I'm going to get this. I'm going to mess with it. I'm going to start. I'm going to flip it upside down. Related to that then, seventh, is guard against the battle of the sexes. Guard against the battle of the sexes. As God pronounces the consequences for sin, he is deliberate and clear of the contentiousness between husband and wife that would result. 
As God is pronouncing the curses upon Adam, even the serpent, here's what God says to Eve. Chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What does this mean? Well, there is nearly an identical Hebrew construction in the very next chapter, just a few verses later, chapter 4, verse 7. After Cain and Abel had offered their offerings and God had rejected Cain's, he became very angry and God saw that he was angry and God spoke to Cain and here's what he said. But if you not, do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The sense of it is that God is saying to Cain, hey, listen, Cain, sin has a desire. It wants to control you, but you must not allow it to have its way with you. You must rule over it. This clarifies what God is saying to Eve in chapter 3, verse 16. Just as it's sin's desire to have its way with Cain, so it will be Eve's desire to have her way with her husband. So God hands her over to the misery of competition with her rightful head. But that's not at all all that God says. He also says that Adam, the husband, will rule over her. Listen, God is not saying this is Adam's job. Remember, he's pronouncing curses. He's pronouncing the punishment for their sin. God is saying that Eve is going to have a bent towards controlling her husband. And Adam is going to have a bent toward dominating his wife. Carrie Sandham put it this way, Eve will no longer willingly submit to her husband's lead and will seek to control and gain power over him instead. And Adam will no longer willingly exercise loving, self-sacrificial leadership over his wife, but will seek to rule over and master her instead. See, sin distorts the, the original creation design. For the wife, the distortion involves movement from helper to controller. For the husband, the distortion moves from leader to dominator. In either case, the problem is not God's original design of helper leader. The problem is sin's distortion of God's original design. So what does that mean for us then? Well, eighth, men must obediently embrace their God-ordained role of leading for God. I keep a record of meetings that I have with people because it helps me keep a pulse on what's transpiring within the church and within ministry over a period of time. Uh, Many of the meetings I have with people are pastoral care meetings, people coming in who are dealing with really tough stuff, hard stuff, uh, going through hard times, emotionally challenging times. In about 15 years of record keeping, you know, you want to know what case is in the top five? Top five cases. A case is too often repeated. Spiritually single wives. Women who are married to men who are not followers of Jesus Christ, much less spiritual leaders in their homes. The reasons for this are numerous. Most often it's the case they were married as unbelievers. The wife became a Christian later in their marriage. We've got women in our church who can explain very well what it's like to live in that. Why is that painful? Why does that rise to a top five case? Because it's sin's distortion of God's good design. Husbands, listen, you were made by God to be spiritual leaders in your marriage and your home. That's God's design. Now, let me pause right there because our our culture also suffers from a faulty definition of leadership. Men, listen, do not construe leadership with machismo. Machoism. I have a colleague in ministry who pastors an Alliance Church in Lima, Peru. He and I have spent many hours talking about men's ministry. And in his cultural context, the number one challenge he has in doing ministry to men is, and this is what he calls, this is where I came up with it, it's machismo. It's machismo. The result is that he's got men in his church who are rough, abrasive, harsh, 
on the far end of things, abusive and sometimes violent. That's male domination. That's not male leadership. So sin's distortion of manhood can run in two opposite directions. Passivity and domination. Sin's distortion of manhood runs in two opposite directions. Passivity, domination. There is no question. Adam's sin in the garden started with passivity. So part of embracing our God-ordained role in leading for God entails rejecting passivity. But rejecting passivity doesn't mean being abrasive or harsh. Jesus, the greatest leader of all time, was both tender and proactive. He was both gentle and assertive. He was both patient and decisive. I've been thrilled that we've been using 33 the series at this church. It teaches these principles. It hits the details. I don't have time to fill in for you. But just as a cursory overview, what does it look like to lead for God? Let me read some verses for you. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is what it looks like to lead for God. You will not get that definition out there. How did Christ love the church? By dying on the cross, by giving himself naked and bleeding to suffer for her, by putting her needs above his own, by giving everything for her. This is what it means to lead for God. Ephesians 6, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The related passage in Colossians 3, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Don't poke at them until they're frustrated. Encourage them. Dads, you should be the first ones looking them in the eye and say, you can do this. You've got this. Fathers, open the Bible in front of your kids and teach them. Teach them. This is what it looks like to lead for God. First Timothy 2, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This is what it looks like to lead for God. In every place, men, you pray. Your home, your place of work, in your car. And while you're at it, ditch the anger and ditch the quarreling. This is what it looks like to lead for God. Titus 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Each one of these descriptors is a sermon all by itself. This is what it means to lead for God. Ninth, women must obediently embrace their God-ordained role of helping for God. Back in chapter 2, verse 18, God spots a deficiency in his creation. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, what do you expect to come next in the story? God is pronouncing he's got this deficiency. I would expect him to say, oh, right, fine. Where's the suitable helper? Go ahead. Have at it. God, take care of this. But what do we have instead? We've got the naming of the animals. Why the delay? Why does God parade the animals in front of Adam for him to name them? Because the man did not yet see the problem with his aloneness. Naming in the scriptures was a big deal, by the way. It involved more than slapping an arbitrary label on each beast. The task required the man to consider each animal thoughtfully so that its name was appropriate to its particular nature. Out of this exercise, it begins to dawn on Adam that there was no creature in the garden that shared his nature. So the process of naming the animals helps him to discover his, his unique position in the world, but he also discovers his own solitude in the world. So God performs the first surgery. 
Adam falls into a deep sleep. And when he awakes, God leads Eve to Adam, who greets her with a poetic song of celebration. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. It's very interesting. These are the first recorded human words in the Bible, and they are poetry. First recorded human words in the Bible, and it's poetry celebrating a woman. When Adam lays eyes on her, he perceives that, wow, wow. She's not a rival. She's his partner. She shares his nature. She's not perceived as a threat, but as the only one capable of fulfilling the God-appointed role of suitable helper. Now, Margaret Kostenberger anticipates a potential pinch in God's use of the phrase suitable helper. She writes, many of us women today have trouble seeing ourselves as helpers of the man. Why should we help him? Isn't that an inferior role? Why shouldn't he help us? In working this through, it's helpful to note that the term helper is applied several times throughout the Old Testament to none other than God himself. The fact that God can be said to be helper lends great dignity and value to this role. Since God is clearly not inferior to anyone, whatever the term helper entails, it's certainly not inferiority. So what I want you to notice is that sin's distortion of manhood runs in two opposite directions, passivity and domination. Sin's distortion of womanhood also runs in two opposite directions, passivity and control. Both share a temptation to passivity. Notice that being a suitable helper and being passive aren't the same thing. There's nothing passive at all about the wife of noble character in Proverbs 31. Listen to how she's described. She's she's got noble character. She images God wherever she goes. Her husband has full confidence in her. Uh, She's economically savvy, active, and wise. She selects wool and flax, considers a field, and buys it. Her trading is profitable. Her work ethic is second to none. She's compassionate and charitable. She speaks with wisdom and watches over the the affairs of her household. The suitable helper is no building lackey. The suitable helper is no valet service. The term helper suffers from a modern American understanding that shrinks its dynamics. The biblical term that God uses to describe Eve, azer, is very rich and nuanced. In some places, it refers to a helper defender. Others, it's a helper supporter. In other places, it's a helper protector. Keep in mind, numerous places in the scriptures call God a helper, azer. So one of sin's distortions of womanhood is passivity. The other, just like the men, it's got, it's got a sin of passivity. It's got a sin of aggression. The other is of control. Now, the book of Proverbs paints this picture in great detail in how sin distorts femininity. Folly or foolishness is personified by the adulteress. She's seductive. She dresses suggestively. Her lips drip honey. She's wayward. She flirts with her eyes. She's brazen, loud, and undisciplined. But even respectable women do not escape the sharp eye of the author of Proverbs. Wives who would never dream of committing adultery themselves may wear their husbands down. They verbally nag, dripping like faucets, and drive their husbands up to the corner of a roof to escape the barrage of demands and criticisms. 
Some women manipulate and seduce. Others are bossy, nagging, and bad-tempered. These are sin's distortions of womanhood. Let me let the scripture speak. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. When you do this, you help for God. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. When you do this, you help for God. There's a whole lot more that could be said about this Titus passage, but I'll refer you to our women's ministries director, Michelle Jesco, and the teaching she did on that this past semester. And if you want to dig deeper into the topic of helper, I would highly recommend reading a book by Susan Hunt entitled By Design, God's Distinctive Calling for Women. She delves into this in great detail. Tenth and finally, men and women must keep in mind their primary life purpose. Too often in discussing God's design for men and women, we reduce it all to a single question. What are my rights? What do I get to do? Susan Hunt in the aforementioned book puts it this way. She says, any discussion of male and female distinctiveness can quickly become a self-centered pursuit unless we're focused on the glory of our sovereign God. Is our objective our rights? Are we fighting to get what we deserve? Or is our objective God's glory? Are we honestly seeking the honor of our God? These questions put us in the uncomfortable position of searching our hearts to know our motives. If you're hung up with the question, what do I get to do or what title do I get to have? Your starting point is going to create a trajectory that will leave you a great distance from the heart of God as time marches onward. Because remember for the first point, your life is not about you. Your life is not about you. God did not make you in your own image. You have a derivative image. You're the image of God. The right starting point is approaching God and saying to him, okay, God, you made me. You made me. I'm your spitting image. Therefore, I will relentlessly pursue the distinct place in your universe you have revealed to me in your word. Now, as I close, I want to return to that question I posed to you at the beginning. Now, I'm going to answer it for my own kids because I'm in the throes of this. If my daughter came to me and asked, Daddy, what does it mean to be a woman? This is what I'd say. I'd say, Taylor, you are God's likeness. You're his spitting image. And because of this, you are of inestimable value to him. Your value and worth in his eyes aren't determined by what you do or what title you have or how much your paycheck is. Your value is in your humanness. And because you're the spitting image of God, everything about you ought to point to him. As his image, you are to resemble him. As a woman, your life ought to scream to the world that you revere him more than anything or anyone else. And of course, Taylor, this means you to know him. It means to grow in your knowledge of him, your love for him, your devotion to him. This is what it means to be a woman. 
And as his image bearer, you have a responsibility, Taylor, to work. Whether that's in the home or the workplace, God will make that clear to you. And as you go about your work, do it well for the glory of God and the love of those in your care. If the Lord should bless you with a husband, Taylor, you make sure that he loves Jesus more than he loves you. For only if this is true, will he love you just as Christ loved the church. And when you enter that covenant of marriage, Taylor, make sure you put air under your husband's wings. Love him. Follow his loving leadership. You're a stabilizing force. You're a refreshing presence in his life and the life of your home. Let that be your legacy. Your noble character, Taylor, is worth more than anything any money can buy. And as you age, make sure you pass on to younger women what you've learned. Teach them modesty, self-control, and wisdom. And above all else, Taylor, you remember the reason you exist in the first place. To draw all attention to the importance and significance of the God who made you. This is what it means to be a woman. And if my son came to me and asked, Daddy, what does it mean to be a man? This is what I'd say. Say, Braylon, you're God's likeness. You're a spitting image. And because of this, you are of inestimable value to him. Your value and worth in his eyes aren't determined by what you do or what title you have or how much your paycheck is. Your value is in your humanness. And because you're his spitting image, everything about you ought to point to him. As his image, Braylon, you're to resemble him. As a man, your, your life ought to scream to the world that you revere him more than anything or anyone else. And of course, this means you're to know him. It means you're supposed to grow in your knowledge of him and your love for him and your devotion to him. As his image bearer, Braylon, you've got a responsibility to work. And as you go about your work, you do it well for the glory of God and the love of those in your care. And if the Lord should bless you with a wife, Braylon, make sure she loves Jesus more than she loves you. For only if this is true will she follow your loving leadership and be a stabilizing force and refreshing presence in your home. And Braylon, when you enter that covenant of marriage, you make sure you model Jesus to her. You love her as Christ loved the church and gave everything for her. And you do that in everyday moments. You sacrifice for her good. If the Lord should bless you with children, open the Bible and teach them to love the Lord with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Encourage them. Don't exasperate them. Be a man of prayer. Show yourself to be self-controlled, of sound mind, of sound faith. And remember, Braylon, that your character is worth more than money can buy. And as you age, pass on to younger men what you've learned. And above all else, son, remember the reason you exist in the first place. To draw all attention to the importance and significance of the God who made you. This is what it means to be a man. Let's pray. Lord, we have drifted, society, we have drifted so far from your design and your ideal as if we disbelieve somehow if we live these things out, we're going to be empty and unfulfilled and unhappy. That's a, a lie from the pit of hell. God, we need to reclaim this ground. 
You have taken the time, you've given us the detail to speak into what it means to be a man and a woman, and we need to give the time and the effort to know it, to live it. God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, illuminate the pages of the text. And where we have wandered, convict us, bring us back. Help us to celebrate and rejoice in the right things, the right things, even though they may be diametrically opposed to the things our culture celebrates. And God, above all, we want to remember whose image we've been made in. We're not our own image. We don't project our own image to the world. That's not our mission. Our mission is to project your image to the world. May that be true of your people. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.